Hi, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm Glenn Johnston, uh, and uh, I'm an associate here at Lois Law Firm. You can reach out to me at the office anytime with any questions on what we're about to talk about today. And my name is Chris Major. I'm likewise an associate here at Lois Law Firm. Uh, and you can reach either of us at 201-880-7213. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about uh, Section 29 liens and subrogation in New York. So let's assume first off that there's a workers' compensation claim. So when we have a workers' compensation claim, um, when there is a potential third party action is if there's another party involved. So the questions we're gonna ask at the outset of any such thing is, is there an actual tortfeasor, i.e. somebody other than the claimant or employer who might be responsible for the claimant's injury? Has the claimant already filed a lawsuit against said tortfeasor? Uh, and was the employee's injury the result of somebody else's negligence? So let's look at what the facts of any typical loss might be. And we're going to watch a little here right off the bat. We're going to see a guy who's having a wonderful day, a wonderful day at work. He's look, just walking to his car with I his briefcase. I wish I were this guy until now. Yeah. And then it gets bad. Yeah, okay. Right. So what do we ask? Well, we want to know who maintained the garage, who owned the garage and who may be at fault that might be the subject of a third party action in this instance. So let's talk for a moment about reimbursement versus subrogation. So reimbursement is sort of self-explanatory in the sense that you've paid amount, an amount out in workers' compensation benefits, assume the claimant has already filed their third party action against the, going off our prior example, owner of the garage or the person who maintains the garage, uh, you have a Section 29 lien on that case, and when that case ultimately settles, you will be reimbursed for compensation benefits paid. Subrogation is when you're stepping into the shoes of the claimant, and we'll discuss this a little later on, but the claimant's going to decline to file their own case for whatever reason. Maybe they don't want the hassle, and we have a statutory right as an employer or insurance carrier to step in and subrogate the claim. Now, What's important to note and what's sort of unique to uh, New York among other workers' compensation reimbursement statutes is that uh, it's not either or in this scenario. Uh, you can both collect a Section 29 reimbursement and you can also subrogate the claim. And you might see this situation arise where there's two distinct causes of action, um, maybe a medical malpractice claim that the claimant declines to file uh, after they say they get injured, uh, they go in for surgery, doctor botches the surgery, uh, maybe they got injured by a third party, maybe they declined to file the med mal claim and maybe we find merit in it. Uh, and so we can both get reimbursed from the personal injury claim and subrogate the med mal claim in that example. Now section 29 is self-executing, so uh, it's going to automatically apply to any third party action filed by the claimant. Now, one of the things that we do to preserve uh, reimbursement rights um, is we need to make sure that all parties are on notice. Now, Section 29 is itself self-affecting, meaning that notice isn't required in order to uh, put the Section 29 lien into effect. But as a best practice, you should always put all parties on notice as soon as possible. The other thing you want to make sure that you do is to monitor any civil claims that you're talking about. And in the instance that Chris just talked about with multiple claims, you're going to want to monitor, monitor the, all of the claims uh, so that you know what stage they're at for your subrogation. And then yeah, as far as uh, putting the parties on notice, you know, uh, we also think it's best practices to uh, 
include what the current amount is paid in workers' compensation benefits. So uh, this way you know that whatever your Section 29 lien in is, is going to be ac uh, accommodated in the third-party settlement or considered in any offers going back and forth between the parties. So we have a number of resources to check in on the status of these third-party claims. Uh, the big one we use in New York a lot is eCourts. Uh, you can see up on your screen there, uh, or for those of you listening at home or at work, um, you would enter the index number of the case. This is assuming you have it and a cooperative uh, plaintiff's or defendant's, defendant's attorney who's willing to give you the information. Uh, you'll see on the left side there on eCourts, um, there's a party search functionality. This is uh, if you can't get a hold of the other attorneys involved, you can search by the claimant's last name, first name, you can search by defendant. Uh, I think it's important to note that there are additional resources to find cases. One of them is the New York State Courts Electronic Filing System, NYSCEF. Uh, a lot of cases that are newly electronically filed will be available there and the documents will be available to view. You can get the complaint, answer, uh, all such things. You can usually get those on eCourts too, but if you don't find it on eCourts, it might be on the NYSCEF. And finally, uh, a last resource uh, to keep track of what documents have been filed would be the county clerk's minutes where the action was filed. Uh, but typically you're gonna need the index number to do that. So let's go to the more important question in all of our minds. How much do we get back? Okay. If the third party award is greater than the payments we've made, we're going to get everything back minus attorney fees and costs as per the outcome of the Kelly case. Um, if the third party award is less than our payments made, we still get everything minus attorney's fees and costs as per Kelly, but we also get a future credit against our claims uh, under the Bissell case. So let's talk for a moment about maximizing your Section 29 reimbursement. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to wait for an offer to settle in the third party claim. Uh, we essentially, um, are not going to get involved in the parties litigating between each other until there's some money on the table. Uh, that's when we step in and make sure that our uh, right to reimbursement is represented and protected at the table. Uh, so uh, through personal experience, uh, there are a couple of, uh, let's just call them tricks, uh, plaintiff's attorneys will love to use. Big one is, is uh, threatening to abandon the claim. And uh, Glenn, I, I think you know that uh, no attorney that has litigated a case to conclusion is going to walk away from the attorney's fee at the uh, at settlement, right? I've never seen it happen. <laughs> okay. Never. Okay, so we, you can often go ahead and call that bluff and assume that that's an empty threat. Uh, another uh, favorite line of uh, plaintiff's attorneys, uh, every case I've ever done with a Section 29 lien is settled for a third, a third, a third. My client gets a third, I get a third, and you get a third. Okay, uh, I actually have had situations where I've been told that's in the statute. Uh, false. There is no such thing as a third, a third, a third. Uh, you, your Section 29 lien and reimbursement right are statutory entitlements. So you are entitled to that money less, less cost of litigation as per Kelly. So uh, when they tell you that, they, that you have to waive a portion of your lien to get their client to consent to settle, no. Uh, no, there is no such thing as a third, a third, a third. And finally, uh, another common trick is um, inventing an emergency and attempting to pass it on to you as a way to get you to uh, reduce your lien. And uh, a big one with this is 
uh, case is gone for summary judgment in a week and I think we're going to lose, or uh, my favorite, uh, the defense carrier is here with their checkbook today and they're ready to cut a check for a million dollars and if you don't consent right now, we're all going to walk away with nothing. Well, if that's true, you're walking away from, a, what, essentially $300,000 attorney's fee? I'm not buying it. Not going to happen. Yeah, w wait them out. <clears throat> so there's a couple of other things you need to consider when, ma when thinking about how to maximize your reimbursements. One of them, and the, probably the most important, is that we may have access to more information about what happened initially than any other participant in the case. Remember that we've been getting information since the day they had their accident um, because they want to get paid for that lost time and those injuries as soon as it happens at work. So everything's in early and complete in the workers' comp file. So we may have more information. We also can suggest experts that may assist in the prosecution of the case because we've already dealt with them early on in the workers' comp case, whether it be for medicals or other issues. We also may have more experience with certain kinds of cases um, and certain types of injuries. Um, and more importantly, we may have better relationships with the defense counsel than plaintiff's counsel might have. Because we know everyone always gets along in the world of personal injury law, correct? Especially in New York. No acrimony whatsoever. <laughs> I think, uh, I think my colleague here is, is uh, being a little sarcastic. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> um, so the other thing to, to consider there is subrogation counsel, um, you are going to be viewed as a neutral observer by a mediator who may help the mediator find an avenue to reach consensus. And that's important because basically up until there's money on the table, we are neutral. So everybody's going to look to us as the voice of reason when we're at the table to begin. So uh, let's talk about the right of subrogation now. And if you remember back to earlier in the presentation, this is stepping into the shoes of the claimant. So uh, the word subrogation comes from the Latin subrogatus, to put into the place of another, substitute for another. Uh, plain English, step into the shoes of another. I learned some Latin today. Congratulations. So can we subrogate? Yes, we can. And that's under workers' compensation law, section 29, which we're talking about. So let's take a look at another situation where something may occur. So this gentleman is uh, going on a big business trip or maybe going on vacation up and his day is ruined. Uh, so as opposed to the prior example of the gentleman in the parking garage, uh, there's a unique situation here. Well, before we even get to the unique situation though, we gotta ask those questions. Who owned the hallway? Who maintained the hallway? Who may be at fault? Who can we sue? Well, turns out he's not suing anyone. And so, so this is where the right of subrogation kicks in. So what we can subro. Okay. Just so you're aware of it, we can subrogate any claim against an actual tortfeasor subject to certain limitations. That includes subrogation of a medical malpractice claim, as we discussed earlier. That also includes subrogation of a legal malpractice claim. Say the attorneys involved messed something up and there's a legal malpractice claim. There's money on the table that can help us recover money on the workers' comp payouts. It's something we want to pursue. Uh, we can also even pursue contribution from the employer, but only where there is a grave injury. And the definition of grave injury was covered with uh, a podcast, I believe, with uh, yourself and Chris. Uh, Christian Cison, yes. Uh, but a grave injury is, uh, the, the grave injuries are specifically enumerated under workers' compensation law, section 11, uh, AKA the exclusivity provision saying that you can't sue your employer for a work-related injury. 
unless uh, you have one of these grave injuries. So the notice requirement, uh, if you remember, um, we have to provide notice that we're going to step in and subrogate this claim. So uh, you need to afford the claimant 30 days chance to file their own claim and please continue. Well, the, uh, the employer's right to subrogate begins within one year uh, from when the action accrued, which is your date of loss or injury, or six months after the awarding of compensation, whichever comes first, but only 30 days after the injured worker has been notified in writing by personal service or by certified mail. One of the, the absolute musts that has to happen when you send that uh, notification is that you have to tell them that a failure to commence an action within that 30-day period operates as an assignment of the claim to the employer. But let's think about that for a minute. You're sending this to the claimant. They're not going to be as sophisticated as a lawyer would be. So you have to follow certain guidelines and make sure that you explicitly state as part of that notification that one, you don't represent their interests. Two, if they do decide to bring a claim, they need to let you know so that you can make adjustments and stop any claims action that you have that's involved in that subrogation right. Do you have any other feedback on that? Yeah, um, you know, operate as an assignment may seem like a sort of uh, plain English kind of thing. Um, I just think that uh, it makes a lot of sense to follow up on what the consequences are of this um, so-called assignment. So. Uh, usually followed up with a sentence to the effect of, you know, this means if we file this suit and obtain any judgment, settlement, order, award, uh, that's going to bar your right to file a claim against this person based on this injury. Uh, once we obtain this award, that's it. You no longer have the right to file this claim. And, you know, we're, we're only going after uh, what we've paid in comp. Uh, we're, we're not trying to get this person, you know, the maximum under somebody's insurance policy. Uh, we're, we're just interested in our reimbursement here. So uh, a lot of times we'll find that this actually uh, will be the sort of kick in the butt that uh, the claimant needs to step in and, and save us a lot of this legwork. <laughs> so what limitations are there under uh, the subrogation scheme? Right. So, uh, this uh, dabbles into the world of uh, motor vehicle and insurance law uh, in New York. Um, and this is uh, not motivated by uh, self-interest whatsoever, but uh, myself and uh, Christian Cisan, a partner here at Lois Law Firm, uh, did a pretty extensive podcast on loss transfer arbitration and, and first party benefits and, and what have you. Uh, first party benefits are defined in New York insurance law 5102, 5104. Uh, long story short, uh, the first 50,000 of um, benefits paid, uh, basic economic loss, it's referred to, uh, the carrier does not have a lien for. Um, so effectively, it sort of operates at a, as a carve out to your Section 29 lien, right? So you've paid out 100,000 in comp from a motor vehicle accident, your reimbursement right is 50,000 with, with a few caveats. Um, as for the uninsured motorist benefits and the underinsured motorist benefits? Well, the uninsured and underinsured are, are similarly carved out because when you think about it, when do those arise? They arise when either the claimant has insufficient insurance limits 
uh, or they have no insurance, or they've been hit and run by somebody, they don't know who the person who did it is, or they've been hit by somebody with not enough insurance or no insurance. So again, this it would operate in the same way that a first party benefits claim would and pay out. So by trying to recover that money, it would be essentially be making the claimant pay for their own workers' comp case, which we can't have. Right, and and in situations like this, you know, from a common sense sort of perspective, it it makes sense to think about the party that's uh, actually responsible, the guilty party here. You know, it's not the claimant, it's not their insurance carrier, it's the guy that did the hit and run. Now, Insurance Law 5105, uh, this is the world of intercompany loss transfer arbitration. Uh, again, uh, you can five times fast. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, you can check out LoisLLC.com. We've got a couple articles on this. Uh, again, myself and Mr. Cson's podcast. Uh, but uh, there's basically two requirements where you can uh, pursue as a workers' compensation carrier uh, what's called loss transfer with the third-party defense carrier. Uh, there's two situations in which this applies. There's the so-called weight requirement and the livery requirement. I'm not going to go too deep into that, but uh, if the car weighs, if any car in the accident weighs over 6,500 pounds unladen, uh, the case qualifies for loss transfer, or if the vehicle was used principally for the transport of persons or property, I, I think is the way they phrase it, aka the livery requirement, uh, you're talking about your taxi cabs, that kind of thing. Uh, as Transportation of property doesn't mean, um, you know, the neighborhood bakery delivering their rolls to you know their buyers that's not a company that's hired to transport property here you're talking about uh you know your common carriers ups fedex etc 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 for loss transfer uh you have to wait one year plus 30 days and uh yeah well I, it's it's also important to note with loss transfer recovery arbitration uh all insurers in the state are required to submit to that as part of their contract with the state. So everyone who has an insurance policy in the state will automatically uh, go into that 5105 loss recovery transfer arbitration as a matter of statute. And, and where this loss transfer actually applies, uh, the way it ends up shaking out is, uh, it's just your recovery when loss transfer applies again. It's just your section 29 recovery is gonna come from multiple sources. So you're gonna have the 50,000 in the prior example of the $100,000 motor vehicle accident or $100,000 you've paid out in comp benefits. Uh, you know, other in any other case where loss transfer didn't apply, there's a 50K carve out. When loss transfer does apply, you have your 50K lien, and then you have the 50,000 you can get from an intercompany loss transfer arbitration from the carrier for the libel defendant tortfeasor driver. Right. So there are a couple of problems that may crop up when you're dealing with these subrogation claims. The first and foremost that everybody expects is the cooperation of the claimant with discovery and general prosecution of the claim. Now, earlier I had said that we have access to a lot of the information early on in the case. But at a certain point, when claimants feel that uh, their interests aren't being served, they may clam up. So when you proceed with these sorts of, of subrogation matters, be aware of the minefield that occurs when you're trying to obtain discovery uh, and prosecute the claim with the assistance of the claimant. Because remember, you don't represent them, you've told them you don't represent them, and they may get the impression that, that it's against their interest to cooperate. So your job is to make sure that they understand that you're not trying to 
keep them from money that they deserve in these instances. Right. And and you have, um, as as with the Section 29.2 notice where you advise the claimant you're going to step in and subrogate, uh, you know, in many of these situations, well, if you're subrogating, there's almost a per se chance that they're going to be unrepresented. Uh, so again, you're talking to a layperson, um, and it's important that even though your interests uh, may align with the claimants had they filed their own case where you're, where you're both hoping for the maximum reimbursement and you're stepping into the shoes of the claimant, um, you do not represent the claimant. You represent the employer or their insurance carrier. So you got to be careful about giving any sort of legal advice to this claimant when you're seeking uh, discovery information, your bill of particulars sort of information or notice for discovery and inspection, all those civil discovery advices. You got to be careful uh, not, not to come across as though you're representing the claimant's interests and, and giving them any sort of advice. Okay, so uh, statute of limitations. Um, so if you remember, we talked about the notice requirement for section 29. Um, so you got to keep track of dates here. So for personal injury and motor vehicle accidents, uh, you're looking at a three-year statute of limitations. That means uh, the, the date the accident happens, three years from then, you have to file suit or your claim is barred. Um, now, you do have to wait to subrogate a claim, right? Yeah. Yeah. So one year plus the 30 day notice requirement. Yeah. Or the uh, six months, six months af yeah. after comp benefits are paid. Mm -hmm. So uh, in a situation like that, uh, say you're waiting one year after the injury occurred, uh, if the claimant gets hurt, you know, in 2017, by 2018, they haven't filed their own claim. You have until uh, 2020, unless my math is off. Uh, I lawyers, think you're right. Lawyers and math are, you know, oil and water. Uh, but yeah, um, you have until 2020 to file that claim. So uh, within those two years, you're going to want to make sure you get that Section 29.2 notice out as soon as possible. You wait the 30 days. Claimant doesn't take any action. That's when you file your case. And never forget that the med mal actions are a separate statute of limitations in New York of two and a half years. So if med mal's involved, you've got six months less. So um, we have a few more of these uh, webinars coming up. Uh, that, that's pretty much it for today. Uh, so on January 18th, we have another webinar titled New Scheduled uh, Loss of Use Guidelines in New York. Uh, and on uh, January 15th, we have Section 32 Settlements and Medicare Secondary Payer in New York. Medicare is secondary payer. Uh, and then again, on February 19th, we have Appeals in New York and Post-Trial Practice. Uh, we have more webinars coming up in the new year, so stay tuned, and we'll look forward to hearing from you. Thanks a lot. And again, this is uh, Chris Major with Lois Law Firm signing off, and my colleague, Glenn Johnston. Thanks for listening.